All right, so on the screen, in a moment here, we'll have a picture. It's a picture of a, a man named Henry uh, Bibb. And Henry Bibb uh, was born in 1815. He died at a very young age, 39 years of age. A few years before he died in his mid-30s, he wrote a book called Narrative of the Life and Adventures of an American Slave. It was his story. He's a fugitive slave. He became an abolitionist, very active, leading abolitionist, fighting slavery. Uh, he eventually had to move to Canada because the laws had changed. And uh, escaped slaves had to move to the north. There were now laws that would send them back to their originating country. But he still continued his work from there. And he wrote this book um, somewhere around that time. One of the issues that was facing abolitionists at that time is they were trying to convince people that slavery was was evil, one of the issues were people who defended slavery saying, well, we treat our slaves really well. We treat them like family. We treat them almost like employees. They're probably better off as our slaves than to just be set free uh, and make do for themselves. So Henry Bibb writes this account in his book of a slave auction. And one of the things he's trying to do is he's trying to show one of the fatal flaws in that way of thinking but it also helps us enter into some of the realities of slavery. So I'm just gonna read you his account. It's a, it's a condensed version that I got from um, uh, somebody else condensed, but I'll, I'll give it to you here. So here we go. Mr. Young, a devout Methodist, never was known to flog one of his slaves or sell one. He fed and clothed them well and never overworked them. He allowed each family, a small house to themselves with a little garden spot whereupon to raise their own vegetables and a part of the day on Saturday to allow them to cultivate it. So this guy was like the poster boy uh, for benevolent slave ownership. Uh, so much so that his slaves, many of his slaves who were Christians, attended his church and were allowed to attend his church, which is a rare thing uh, in those days for that kind of thing. So that, that church was, let's say, progressive enough to to allow that to happen. Um, in time, he became deeply involved in debt. And his property was all advertised to be sold by the sheriff at public auction. It consisted of slaves, many of whom were his brothers and sisters in his local Methodist church. The first man offered on the block was an old gray-haired slave by the name of Richard. When they had bid him up to 70 or $80, one of the bidders asked Mr. Young what he could do as he looked old and infirm. Mr. Young replied by saying, he is not able to accomplish much manual labor from his extreme age and hard labor in his early life. Yet, I would rather have him than many of those who are young and vigorous, who are able to perform twice as much labor because I know him to be faithful and trustworthy, a Christian in good standing in my church. I can trust him anywhere with confidence. This, this giving him a good Christian character caused them to run him up to near $200. His poor old companion stood by weeping and pleading that they might not be separated. But the marriage relation was dissolved by the sale and they were separated never to meet again. After the men had all sold, were all sold, they then sold women and children. They ordered the first woman to lay down her child and mount the auction block. She refused to give up her little one and clung to it as long as she could while the cruel lash was applied to her back for disobedience. She pleaded for mercy in the name of God. But the child was torn from her arms of, her, his mother, of its mother amid the most heart-rending shrieks from the mother and child 
on the one hand and bitter oaths and cruel lashes from the tyrants on the other. In this way, the sale was carried on from beginning to end. There was each speculator with this, there was each speculator with his handcuffs to bind his victims after the sale. And while they were doing their writings, completing their papers, the Christian portion of the slaves asked permission to kneel in prayer. While bathing each other with tears of sorrow on the verge of their final separation, their eloquent appeals in prayer to the Most High seemed to cause an unpleasant sensation upon the ears of their tyrants. They were soon raised from their knees by the sound of the lash and the rattle of the chains in which they were soon taken off by their respective master, husbands from wives and children from parents, never expecting to meet until the judgment of the great day. And then he finishes uh, this account with these words. Having thus tried to show the best side of slavery that I can conceive of, the reader can exercise his own judgment in deciding whether a man can be a Bible Christian and yet hold his Christian brethren as property so that they may be sold at any time in market as sheep or oxen to pay his debts. I think, um, I think any time you wanna talk about a subject like this, you ought to spend some time in the realities of the subject. It's easy to, somewhat easy for some to speak theoretically about things. But when you see the reality, as he describes the reality there, you could be the most benevolent slave owner, for example, and he says, there's still property, and if you run into trouble, this is what can happen. And not only that, most people were not benevolent, so benevolent, and sold and traded and did all those things and split up families all the time. So we're going to look at two really challenging questions that Christians have to face, and um, they have to do with slavery and racism. And so the question we're looking at this week is, why doesn't the Bible prohibit slavery? And the question for next week is, how could Christians have been defenders and participants in European and American slavery? Because many Christians were leading Christians, many leading Christians were that exactly. So we're exploring these questions because we're in Philemon. <laughs> And it's part of this larger series. Now, we don't say it every week. In fact, we never say it anymore. Uh, that we started a series three years ago. <laughs> it's kind of discouraging for somebody who comes in new. <laughs> they go, what? They've been in two years, two and a half years. We're about ready to finish it. And it's been a series that's gone through the highlights of the whole Bible. We usually mention we're looking at the highlights of the New Testament. We've been doing that for the last year and a half. We're about to end it. We're excited about what's coming next. And we'll be sharing that with you over the next four weeks. Um, but uh, we are today getting towards the end of the New Testament. We're getting towards the end of Paul's life. And this is a letter that he wrote towards the end of his life. And it provides some great opportunities to explore these kinds of questions that we need to explore. The, the fact that the Bible doesn't prohibit slavery, and the fact that our theological forebears oftentimes defended slavery ought to bother us should make us feel really, really uneasy. 
Um, and, and if we're going to be people of God's word, as I think most of us want to be, certainly that's what our church is about. We want to be people of God's word. We have to get our heads around this. And we need to be able to address it. And we need to be able to address it cogently. We need to address it sensitively. And, and there's several reasons for that. One is, this is a stumbling block for a lot of people. I mean, people are just one click away <laughs> from these kinds of questions. And, and, and especially those who are digital natives, those who've grown up all their lives that way, they turn with any question like this constantly. And if there's a question about Christianity that makes them un just look it up. And this is an issue that a lot of people bring up to, I don't even want to say attack. Sometimes it's to attack the authority of Scripture. Other times it's to redefine the authority of Scripture. To say we just, the way we think about Scripture cannot be true with this kind of issue. And so it, it, it helps to undermine really the authority of Scripture ultimately. So we need to be, we need to be people who um, can speak to this in a way that will help those for whom this is a stumbling block. And parents, this is a stumbling block for the next generation. You need to know this. Uh, we need to address this also because it can't be ignored by a church like ours that's seeking to be more and more multicultural and multiracial to reflect its environment, its, its community. And we need to address this uh, because we have a tendency oftentimes as Bible-believing Christians to offer simplistic answers, insensitive answers, ignorant answers, or sometimes know-it-all type answers. We have a tendency to think we've got our head around this and now I've got, I, I heard somebody talk about this and I've got the answer, I'm going to give you the answer. I'm going to show you today that anybody who does that is just probably ignoring some of the things that I'm going to bring up for you today. In fact, one of my goals is in this sermon is not to just answer the question for you because I can't answer the question for you. How, why is it? I, I, don't, I can't answer the question for you. Uh, complete, I, I can't answer the question for you. I literally can't. And so one of my one of my goals is to just raise our sensitivity level for dealing with subjects like this. Um, also to equip you on how to answer the question. Now I don't think listening to a sermon is gonna equip you. You know that, you know, I know that. You probably know that. Listening to a sermon doesn't like prepare you exactly. It's one little small piece of equipping. But hopefully it raises an awareness, it raises a sensitivity level. Posting the stuff I'm gonna post on my blog over the next couple of weeks, um, hopefully is a place you can return to if you get into a discussion about this. And so that's, those, are, those are my goals um, that I have for this. So Philemon, a little background on Philemon. Uh, it's, it's the shortest letter of the Apostle Paul. That's why it's at the end of all the Pauline epistles. And so the Pauline epistles are not put in chronological order. They're put in by size uh, unless, um, well, basically by size. And then um, it's 25 verses, so there are no chapters in it. So it's Philemon plus a verse is how you reference it. Uh, the Apostle Paul is in prison, probably in Rome. He's written a letter to Colossae. We looked at that one last week, a few verses from that uh, letter. He appended this letter, or not appended, but he gave a separate letter to be carried with the letter from prison to Colossae. And it's written to uh, a man named Philemon, and Philemon is a rich man in the Colossian church, and he hosts, he hosts 
one of the house churches, because all the churches were house churches, he, he is the host of one of the house churches uh, in Colossae. And he's writing to Philemon, but not just to Philemon, he's writing to several people, it's in the introduction, uh, meaning this is a public letter. This is not a letter that was meant to just be read by Philemon. It's to Philemon to be read to everyone, which has its own interesting dynamic that we'll talk about in a moment. But what's happened is that Philemon had a slave uh, that had run away and probably had stolen. The indication is that he had stolen something from Philemon. So his name is Onesimus. Somehow, we don't know how, somehow he makes his way to Paul in Rome uh, for reasons we don't know. Uh, he's probably asking help from Paul. Paul leads him to Christ into a relationship where Christ is his Lord and Savior. Now he's a Christian. And he's going to send him back, or he's going to go back. Uh, Onesimus is going back to uh, Philemon. And in the letter, the apostle Paul says, please receive Onesimus back without reprisal. I mean, the penalties for running away and stealing would be very, very serious in the Greco-Roman world. And he says, don't, don't, don't go after him, you know, legally. I want you to receive him back as a brother, not as a slave, which right away might sound like He's saying, let him free, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Probably doesn't. Just say, receive him as a brother. Don't receive him as a slave, like he's just a slave, that kind of a thing. So here are a few things to notice as I read, because it's a pretty interesting letter. One of them is um, Paul's language, describing his love for Onesimus is one of the, like there's nothing like it uh, that approaches it, well, maybe approaches it, in the rest of his letters, when he talks about, Paul can be very emotive about the people in his churches, how much he loves them. He, this is over the top, his love for Onesimus. The second thing is that Paul puts out, pulls out all the stops when it comes to persuasion. I mean, the rhetoric in this letter is, is what you, it, it's, it's manipulative. I mean, you'll see it in, in a moment. It's like, he makes it, almost impossible. He makes it impossible, he does, for Philemon not to do what he says without shaming himself in front of the rest of the congregation. I mean, it's that strong. And a lot of people make jokes about it or go, like this. <laughs> we shouldn't. A man's life is at stake. Maybe not his, his life, but his physical. I mean, this man could be maimed for what he did. This is really important. And Paul is not going to hold back at all. He is going to use everything in his arsenal of persuasion to get. He doesn't care if Philemon goes. Ultimately, he doesn't care if Philemon goes along just to go along. Because he wants to save Onesimus. He doesn't want that. Once Philemon's heart to be in it, you're going to see that. But more than anything, he wants Onesimus not to suffer because of this. The last thing is, as I read this, you have to get out of your mind American slavery from our past uh, of, of a race-based chattel slavery. Chattel slavery is where someone is an owner of someone who can do whatever they want with that person. That is not New Testament slavery. It wasn't an ownership. There are millions of slaves today, millions, tens of millions of slaves around the world today. Not a one of them is owned by anybody. And it's still slavery, still forced labor, something they can't escape from, all that sort of thing. So, but there's no government in the world today that allows people to own people. 
the last government to end it was in 1981, believe it or not. All right, so we're going to read, starting in verse 8, after some of the important preliminaries, but for time's sake, we're going to jump into verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. In other words, I'm an old man now, and an apostle, remember. But I appeal to you in the name of Jesus for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and me. The, if you, we were reading this in the original language Greek, we would see there's a play on words there. Onesimus means useful. All right, so it's a play there. Verse 12. I'm sending him back, who is my very heart, back to you. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him here with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, know, to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Aristarchus Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Why doesn't the Bible prohibit slavery? So the very first thing to notice is that it's right there in the question. The Bible doesn't prohibit slavery anywhere. Now, New Testament slavery, I've already hinted at this, I've already talked about this, very different than what we think of when we think of slavery. Um, it was more regulated. It wasn't a complete ownership type of idea. It's that you were either uh, defeated in a war or you uh, had debt that you couldn't repay, and it was, you know, I'll work for you instead of going to prison because I can't pay my debt. There's all kinds of reasons like that. Old Testament slavery, uh, same thing, kind of. In the Old Testament, slavery in the Old Testament was um, uh, very progressive compared to the people around them. Uh, and the whole sense of ownership was mitigated in a whole bunch of ways, and a Hebrew could not own a Hebrew. Uh, so, there's still a big problem. 
<laughs> because if, if you go look this up, this subject, in whatever resources you use, that is one of the major cases that's gonna be made. And what I'm gonna tell you next, I couldn't find anyone discussing, except people who were attacking the scripture or wanting to redefine scriptural authority. All right, so here's the big problem. There is ethnic-based chattel slavery in the Old Testament law. And it comes in Leviticus, and it's very, very difficult to know how to address it. Some of the best study Bibles will say, this is chattel slavery. But it'll just leave it there, and you're like, ah, what do, I, what, what do we do? So here it is, Leviticus 25, beginning in verse 44, it says, your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you, so other ethnicities. From them you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country and they will become your property. Now, it doesn't mean you could just take a foreigner and turn there. This is, you may buy someone who is for some reason on the market of slavery, all right? It wasn't like it automatic. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property and can make them slaves for life, but you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. All right, so slavery was allowed. Slavery was very regulated for Hebrews uh, people, for fellow Jews. There was a, a specific laws that after a certain amount of time, all slaves were to be set free, okay? So you, 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 this, things would return back to normal. This was written into the law code. But when it came to foreigners, it's a different story. It's ethnic-based chattel slavery. What is the answer to that? Because that seems like that's just open to all the extreme abuses of what happened in our country, the kind of thing that I just described to you a little bit ago. So I don't have an answer, but I have responses. So we're going to look at five responses. Um, and here's the first one. The Old Testament law for Israel as a whole mitigates abuses of foreign slaves. Okay, so uh, while it seems uh, very uh, bad for the foreign-born person, uh, who is a slave, there are all these other laws in the Old Testament law that could not be violated even with a slave. One, two, just two in particular, and there were many more than this, but two in particular were all the Old Testament laws that were about how you must treat the foreigners that live among you. And basically the perspective, almost word for word, literally is treat your neighbor as yourself and that applies, you know, love your neighbor as yourself and that applies to the foreign born among you. So you were supposed to show the same kind of love for the foreign born among you, the immigrants, that you show for your own fellow Jews. Second mitigating one was that constantly in the Old Testament, constantly uh, in the Old Testament law, before laws are given many times, before the Ten Commandments are given, before um, individual laws are given, God reminds the people of Israel, you were once slaves. You were once slaves in Egypt. And it's a constant reminder. It's meant to, to move their hearts and, 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 to, um, and to change their perspective. 
All right, so one example of that is in Exodus 22 and verse 21. This is one of many, many examples. It says, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were once foreigners in Egypt. Other ones it says about slaves. You were once slaves in Egypt. So you should treat the people who were among you. You were in a foreign land. You should treat them like you wanted to be treated when you were slaves in Egypt. Now, the result of those kinds of laws is it should turn out different than American race-based chattel slavery. It should turn out different, but it's still troubling. Uh, why not? This is the question that's so difficult to answer. Why, when giving the law to Israel, the people of Israel are taken out of slavery in Egypt, they go into the promised land, God gives them a new law to live by. Why not right there abolish slavery altogether? Why not? Just like, I mean, that's what, where our hearts go. That's why it's difficult. It's like, I don't think there's hardly a person in here who would not say, if I were God, <laughs> I would just abolish slavery right then and there and make, you know, a, a line in the sand. This is something that my people are never crossed. Now, this is where I have to tell you three things that I can't go deeply into um, and uh, I, I can only hint at. I think that part, this is part of larger questions. And one of the larger questions is how God's law functioned in the Old Testament. We think of it as almost like, you know, establishing the new heavens and the new earth. It didn't function in that way. There's aspects of it that are pointing to Christ. There's aspects of it. Uh, the, the laws that God gave Israel, probably about 75% identical to laws of the people around them, word for word, many times. It's not like just out of the sky. Why God did it that way, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. I could speculate about that. If we had more time, I could, I could speculate about it. But, um, but I think it's part of that larger question. God didn't change everything with the people of Israel. There were certain aspects of it. In my mind, there's even a judgment that comes through the law. And Paul seems to kind of speak of that as well. There's almost a sense of, you guys have messed up my earth and you have committed so much evil that even under my law, things are not gonna be easy. It's almost that kind of perspective. Uh, I think also it has larger questions uh, having to do with God's judgment of the nations around them and why God would judge the nations around them. So it might be part of that picture and then finally, there is a theme that runs through the scripture that suffering leads to salvation. Not suffering earns salvation. It's not like I've suffered enough, therefore I get salvation. But there's this theme of suffering and salvation. Uh, a preparation of hearts and minds. And we even see it in Christ, suffering and salvation for us. Uh, so that's a theme that runs throughout the whole Bible. Um, that's all I can say. Their second point is very closely related to the first one, but expands it a little bit. Slavery in Old Testament times, or in biblical times, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, was not as open to abuses as chattel, um, race-based type slavery of our nation's past. Uh, for instance, urban slaves in the New Testament times uh, were oftentimes highly educated, received salaries, more educated many times than their owners, owned small businesses. I mean, it's, it's a weird thing, but as they're waiting to pay off to be 
freed, which they could do, they could redeem themselves, certain number of people that was regulated, certain age, it was regulated by the Romans. But uh, it's a different kind of slavery uh, in the New Testament. It is, and even in the Old Testament slavery, it very, it very much can be compared to uh, what happened in our country when there was a draft and people were sent to go fight a war in Vietnam. Um, they didn't have a choice. And by all definitions, it was forced labor. The difference for slaves back then was they weren't getting shot at usually. Um, uh, the other difference uh, to the advantage of the drafted person is that depending on what you, know, what you joined, you know, certain number of years and you could get out, hopefully, <laughs> unless um, conditions didn't allow for it. So it, it, it is very similar to that. It, it, it's comparable to that in many ways. However, I don't want to soften it too much in your mind because the reality is that when someone is a slave, there is an implied ownership. In the Old Testament, when you were a foreign-born slave, there was ownership. And there's something that happens in the human interactions that when someone has absolute power over someone else, bad things happen to the powerless. The God of the Old Testament, the God as he expresses himself in the Old Testament, Jesus very much undermines that constantly, uh, constantly chooses the person who is suffering, constantly chooses the person who is small, the person who can't defend themselves to represent them. Third point is ownership in the Bible is off, always about stewardship, always. I use the example of a kid's room. You know, you can say, that's your room, they say, that's my room. They move out and they come back within two weeks and you've changed it into something else. And they go, what happened to my room? Hey, my room? It was never your room. <laughs> yeah, everybody referred to it that way, but it wasn't. <laughs> it's my house. <laughs> it's not your house. I'm going to do with what I want with that room. Well, in Scripture, God owns everything. God will say, your stuff. We say our stuff. But God is always reminded. But, but you realize, it's not really your stuff. You're managing it. That's what stewardship is. You're managing it. And that would have applied that that spirit would have applied to even your foreign-born slave. This would, this would mitigate, hopefully, some of the abuses. Number four, God reveals more and more of himself and of his wisdom and will as the Bible progresses. So you can have a law that seems rather draconian in the Old Testament and you see something change in the New Testament. It's what theologians call progressive revelation, it's not a verse that teaches progressive revelation. It's just obvious. <laughs> and so God reveals more. It's, it's progressive revelation is that God doesn't give you the whole thing right there in Genesis. Over time, there's more. And certainly when Christ comes, there's more. So there's some things that happen. I mean, I could, we could spend a whole sermon talking about what I'm going to share with you right now. But I just want to give you three examples of progressive revelation. When, when Paul says to Philemon, take him back as a brother. He's a brother. He's more than a slave. He's a brother. That's taking it maybe to another level. Certainly, when Paul in uh, 1 Timothy talks about, um, ma makes a list of people who do evil, he has in there murderers 
and he has slave traders. All right, so that takes it further than what we have in the Old Testament. Uh, it's also Paul reflecting on the truth that we have in the gospel in Christ who makes a statement that would have been very radical in his world, which is there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And his, what he's trying to say there is complete 100% worth. And this is going to apply to especially what we're talking about next week. Which leads to the next and last point, which is the Bible, in what it says, actually undermines the practice of slavery. It actually provides the strongest arguments against slavery and the strongest motivations for ending slavery. It's the Bible that does that. And um, so it does so. Here's the other another sermon could be. It does so uh, by what it says about the dignity of humanity as image bearers of Christ, what it says about slavery and slaves, and by what uh, the way that it regulates the practice. It regulates the practice of slavery in such a way that it makes it almost financially untenable. So it undermines it in that way. A great case can be made. Again, another sermon. A great case could be made that reason and logic alone would not have overturned slavery. Maybe economics would have eventually, just the way world economics work. But when slavery was overturned in England, when it was overturned here, at the bottom of that movement, running right through the movement, especially in England, but also in the United States, was the gospel. And the logic of the gospel. And the logic of scripture. People left in themselves. You will not come to a belief in slavery being wrong through uh, science and in naturalism, some of the things. In fact, it would just be the opposite. They would be the stronger rule over the weak. That's what we see in nature. That's what we see everywhere. So it's the Bible that provides the motivation. So I want to I want to end it here with, um, or just about end it here with, sharing with you something that uh, Rebecca McLaughlin um, offers in a book called Confronting Christianity, where she takes up about twelve questions, and this being one of them. Um, that she speaks to. And one of the things that, that she gives an example, kind of an illustration of how Christianity undermined the practice of slavery and eventually helped to overturn it. And so it's, she uses uh, the climactic scene from Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice, which I'm not familiar with. So I'm just going to describe what she said to my understanding. I may mess it up if you're a Shakespearean scholar. But uh, the idea is that there's a guy named Antonio, and he's one of the major characters, and uh, he signs a loan. He's got some ships out with uh, cargo. He's going to get a lot of money when they arrive. And he's confident that they're going to arrive just fine. Takes a little bit for granted, as everybody does when we take loans. And he, uh, he signs a note that if he can't repay the loan, uh, the guy, the guy named Skylock, has the ability to take uh, a pound of his flesh from him. Literally. A pound of flesh. And so, sure enough, the ships do not make it back. And Skylock wants his pound of flesh, and there's a court scene. And in the court scene, uh, Antonio is being uh, defended by 
Portia, a female who's dressing like a male so that she can serve as a, as a lawyer in court. And her first move is to ask Skylock to have mercy. What good is it going to do, right? To take a pound of his flesh. It's not going to restore what you need. And Skylock goes, no, I want my pound of flesh. So her second move is, okay, I've got nothing I can say. That's the law. He signed the note. Take your pound of flesh. And so when Skylock goes to take his pound of flesh, Portia goes, oh, just a moment though. Take your pound of flesh. But the contract said nothing about blood. And if you spill even one drop of his blood, all your possessions will go to the state. It's breaking the law <laughs> to spill someone's blood. And so she wins the case. She wins the case by saying, okay to the law, but then undermining it. And so Rebecca McLaughlin makes this point. New Testament argues against slavery the way that Portia argues against Antonio's death by cutting the legs out from under it. Jesus inhabited the slave role. Paul calls himself a slave of Christ, loves a runaway slave as his very heart, and insists that slave and free are equal in Christ. With no room for superiority, exploitation, or coercion, but rather brotherhood and shared identity, the New Testament created a tectonic tension that would ultimately erupt in the abolition of slavery. That is the best argument that I've seen. It's a good argument. But I don't think it would have, in my mind, it would be very encouraging to those slaves that were on that slave block that day that Henry Bibb talked about. Someday, someday these white people are going to get it. They're going to get the gospel. Someday there's going to be a war. It's going to change things. Someday, but for now, say goodbye to everybody you know, everybody you love, and be treated like, a, like an animal, a beast of burden. I don't know that these arguments would, would help them a whole lot. It's frustrating to me. Should be frustrating to you. But if we're going to be truly biblical, we have to live with certain tensions. I mean, you can, as many do, ah, you don't have an answer. I'm walking away from Christianity. I'm going to redefine Christianity into something that is no longer Christianity. You can do that. But you will be walking away from the very arguments that call for the dignity of humanity like nothing else that's out there. You can make up your own arguments for the dignity, something that's in your own heart, and you can share that with a few people. But you will be walking away from something that says, you know what, you're made in the image of God. And therefore you have worth, and you have a God who loves you so much that he died for you. You'll be walking away from that. Just recognize that. Know, know that that's the case. For those of us who hold the Bible dearly and believe in its authority, we just, there's some times where we go, we're going to have to live in a tension of not being able to answer a question in a way that's satisfying to ourselves. And some people, obviously, 
can't live with that kind of tension. It, it creates a whole new, just remember, it will create a whole nother group of tensions if you walk away from it. There is nothing more faith-filled than someone who says human beings are worthy and of dignity but have nothing to back it up. It's just a faith statement based on nothing. It helps me to know three things. He's kind of pulling some things together. This is what does help me to know. It helps me to know that the Bible, while it never prohibited slavery, it does provide the greatest arguments against it. You're not going to find them really in any other, certainly in anything secular. It helps me to know that humanity, not God, instituted slavery. We could spend a whole hour talking about this. Humanity, not God. There is no slavery in the Garden of Eden. There is no slavery in the new heavens and the new earth. We created it. God didn't create hell. Read it. Created the heavens and the earth. We created hell. And so you have to, you, you have to recognize that reality that we are the creators of that evil, not God. And then it helps me, it really helps my heart a lot to know that the people, many of those people who were on that slave block and other people like them on slave blocks may not have been really encouraged very much by anything that I just shared. <laughs> but they were encouraged by a Christ, a God, God himself, who became a slave, became a slave for our sakes, that he loved us that much. And that he was in, for all intents and purposes, by the definition of lynching, he was lynched for their sakes. And many of those people on that slave block understood the gospel much better than their brothers and sisters who were trading them and treating them like property. It gave them a hope that nothing else would have been able to give them because they were in a slavery world and they were going to be in that from the time of their birth to most of them their time of their death. And I hope that those kinds of things bring some encouragement to you as well. Let's pray.